All right, good morning, my friends. Um, the season of Lent, which is what we've been in for the last five, uh, six weeks, is now reaching its climax, okay? This is as we begin a week that the church has dubbed holy. Holy just meaning sacred or, or, or set apart. It's a week in which we continue to journey with Jesus, right? We've been in the wilderness with Jesus. Now Jesus is going to go into a different type of wilderness journey. And we're going to journey with him this week as he goes back and forth. He's going to go, we're going to see him go back and forth from Bethany, where his dear friends lived, into the streets of Jerusalem, to the temple. We'll see him in an upper room, a garden, and eventually this will all lead to his coronation as king on Good Friday. Good Friday, then, is where we sit Shiva under the cross until Easter morning as the despair of Lent, this is how Lent finishes up here, turns to the hope of the season of resurrection, of the Easter season. This is how Lent transitions, right? The vigil of Holy Saturday into the season of new life with the sunrise next Sunday. Let's pray, and then we will set the foundation, I think, for this, this week that is to come. Heavenly Father, Son, Jesus, and Holy, Holy, Holy Spirit, as we wrap up this Lenten season and go into this holiest of weeks and journey with you into Jerusalem, Christ, would you give us new eyes in which to see this week, new ears in which to hear the words that you speak to us, new hearts and new hands and feet in which to engage the world around us. Christ, as we journey with you, may we see this story through the lens of your cross, the ultimate throne upon which you were crowned king. We pray all these things in your most holy name. Amen. All right, my friends, we're going to go back a bit this morning. We're going to look at texts from Luke, John, and Mark this morning. We're going to do this in three parts, okay? We're going to look at three parts that take us on a journey of Christ being crowned as, as king. And the first phase that we're going to go into is we're going to go back to Transfiguration Sunday. Remember Transfiguration Sunday? This was right before Lent started. Remember when Jesus climbed a mountain? Yeah? He climbed that mountain and, 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 and he overlooked the city of Jerusalem from the top of that mountain. And, and, and when he got up there, Moses and Elijah appeared, right? He, he transfigured. And the voice of God said, this is my son whom I am pleased. Well, when they came down from this mysterious and bizarre hike on this mountain, Luke records a few interactions with Jesus in this chapter, in Luke 9, that culminates with these words. Listen to these words. This is how the whole transfiguration chapter starts coming to a close. It says, it came to pass that in completing the days of his ascension, right? This means that it's now time for Jesus to ascend to heaven. Jesus' face, his countenance, was firmly set to go to Jerusalem, right? This is why Jesus is here on this Palm Sunday. And so Jesus sent messengers ahead of him. On their way, they entered a village of the Samaritans to make ready for Jesus. But the Samaritans did not receive him. And it says right here, they didn't receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. 
Well, when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord. Now, remember, this is after Jesus has been doing a lot of teaching on his new kingdom. They go, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, consume the Samaritans? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, saying, you do not know what spirit you are of. For the Son of Man has not come to destroy the lives of human beings, but to save them. I want you to remember this Luke 9, where Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. This is going to transition to Mark into the Son of God in a minute, and you'll see how, how cool this really is. And so right here, when this, when this bizarre hike up the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus is overlooking the city that he wants to go to, when this is over... This begins the first phase of sorts on the way to Jesus' coronation. Because Jesus is going to begin a militant march, right? A militant march in which Jesus and his band of followers, his disciples, his, his, his friends, they would make this steady journey now towards the city in hopes of taking the city over. I'm going to put taking the city over in quotation marks if you're listening on the podcast. I'm putting that in quotation marks. Because Jesus is going to go take over the city. It's just going to look a little bit different. This was the goal, yeah? Remember when Jesus said, I have to go and suffer these things, and Peter says, hey, no, no, you can't do this, Jesus. And he rebukes and says, get away from me, that accusing voice. Get out behind me. And you see, in the first century, it was very common in first century warfare to set your eyes on a city you wanted to take over, and to set out and march towards that city. And sometimes this march for these armies could take months and months. And as they would go, they would take the smaller villages along the way. And they would try to convince these smaller villagers either to join their army, pledge allegiance to this king that's trying to conquer the big city, or they'd be killed. That's why John and James are... Um, was it John and James that I just read? Uh, yeah, James and John, when they saw it, they said, well, well, you know, we're, we're making this march to the city. Let's, let's kill these people. This is what armies did back then. Only Jesus' march, as you can see, if you keep reading the book of Luke, is going to start to confuse many people, including James and, and, and John here. You can see it even beginning as this march starts, because instead of commanding fire to come down from heaven, right, that Jesus could have done this, and let's face it, every general, every commander, every king in the history of the cosmos probably would have taken this offer. Jesus marched instead. Keep reading in Luke. I, I promise you, this is here. Jesus marched through these villages is healing, and he's teaching, and he's bringing life into every village that he goes. Jesus is bringing his kingdom of love. This is this kingdom of love that he wants to use now to overtake the city that he gazed upon on that mountain. Okay, so this brings us to today now with the reading from John that Miss Marshall read just a few minutes ago. This is now phase two of this march towards the city, if you will, okay? We're tracking Jesus' journey, and Jesus has finally arrived at his destination, okay? He sets up camp outside the city like a military general would have done at his friend's house in Bethany. But now he's coming into the city. He's coming to overtake this city. And you can tell that these Hebrew folks are very excited when you listen to what Marcia said. These Hebrew folks are giddy with excitement. Jesus is here, and they're confident. They are confident that this is the one. Jesus is the one who's going to win the city for them to now control. On the flip side, the Romans, 
the ones who had all the power, they had something to lose here, as well as the other religious leaders who were in bed with the Romans and had things to lose as well, they're now looking on this scene in horror. As all these Hebrew people are waving these palm branches of resistance. If you want to get into a tad bit of history uh, here, the palm branches of resistance had been used for hundreds of years before Jesus came into the city. Uh, there was a, uh, a rebellion about 150 years before this um, where there was a, uh, there was a uh, man named Judas who came in and he was overtaking the city and they were using palm branches on their, on their money and it was like a... It was like waving the middle finger to the, to the Romans. That was kind of what they were doing here with these palm branches. Um, and so all these people are riled up on the streets. They're lining the streets. They're saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're hailing Jesus as their new king. They're basically saying, we don't want Caesar as our king anymore. This is Jesus. Jesus is here. Yet, just like Jesus marched towards the city, things look a bit different in his entrance into the city, okay? Uh, there's things that are parallel, right? Like he's still marching in. There's the palm branches and stuff like that. There's people lining up the streets, parades. But it's a grand reversal, if you will, because Jesus now is not riding in in the back of a stallion, a mighty war horse. Instead, if you, got what, if you, if you heard what Marcia said, Jesus rides in on the back of a young, small donkey, Riding a small young donkey into his coronation, this would be, I think I'm safe to say this would be fairly equivalent to us watching our president of the United States, any president, pick wherever you want, choosing to ride a unicycle into his inauguration. This is pretty much what Jesus is doing here with, with the young donkey. It's a strong statement from this new king of the kind of king that he's going to be, right? He's even going to wash his disciples' feet in just a few days. No king in the first century would have washed his disciples' feet. And so if this is how Jesus' march has been going, you can now start to see how the whole rest of this week falls into place. As Christ begins, right, he's going to begin now, he's beginning to take over this city, the hub of Israel, but only he's going to do it through what we call cruciform love, humble, humble love. And this is going to confound the Hebrews. It's going to confound the Romans. Because look at this, by Friday, they're going to all want him dead. They're not going to be able to stand him in about four more days because unlike us, they would have clearly seen these parallels of coming into a city to overtake it and what Jesus here was trying to do. Coronations in the first century, so like the coronations of the Caesars in the first century were a super public event, uh, like a lot like our inaugurations, only these took it to a whole new level. Um, these coronations were, were, were meant to impress. There was a ton of pomp and circumstance with these, uh, with these uh, uh, the coronations of their kings, with the Caesars. Um, they were meant to impress, and, and this particular, this particular, um, coronation process was originated with the Greeks and was called a triambas or a triumph, right? It, the triumphant one, the one who was being coronated as king, was the center of all the attention. And this person was to be deified. The Caesar, when the process was over, as you'll see, would be officially called the son of God, okay? 
So keep that in mind, the Son of God, right? We're, we're sitting here with the Son of God in our mind as Jesus is going to his own coronation. And so what I want to do is I want to look at eight aspects. I don't do this very often with slides and stuff and sermons, but we're going to just look at eight aspects um, of what it would look like for a coronation to happen in the first century with the Caesars, okay? Um, after a king would take a city over or after a king would die and then a new king would come into power, this is what it would look like. They would march into the city. They would have a big parade, much like a Palm Sunday parade. And then they would gather in what was called the Praetorium. Okay? The Praetorium was a place where the, the Praetorium guard would, would, would stand watch, probably about 6,000 soldiers. Okay? They would gather here, and the would-be king, in the first century it was usually a Caesar, They'd be brought into the middle of the gathering of the Praetorium, okay? So now you can picture the scene with all these guards around, the very important people in the middle, with the one to be the Son of God in the very, very middle of this Praetorium, okay? Next, the guards would go to the Temple of Jupiter. This was happening in Rome. The guards would go to the Temple of Jupiter. They would get a purple robe. They'd place it on the candidate. Then the candidate was also given an olive wreath, uh, like, head thing, like a crown, made of gold, and they would give him a scepter that would be the, you know, the sign, the official sign of this is the authority now for Rome. So now you got the Caesar who's in the middle of this crowd in the praetorium, and he's got the crown on his head, a scepter, and a purple robe on his body. Then the Caesar would be loudly acclaimed as triumphant by the Praetorium Guard. So whether the Caesar came into power because of a, a victory or whatever it was, they would be loudly acclaimed as you are the one who we are going to now crown and make king. All right, step four. Then there would be a procession. This procession would start in the Praetorium, and it would walk through the streets of Rome, led by the soldiers. In the very middle of this parade, this procession, the Caesar would, would like basically sit in one of those boxes that you know, four people would you know, carry uh, down the procession. And walking behind him was a bull. This bull was to be sacrificed, whose blood and death would mark the Caesar's entrance into the divine pantheon. They really believed that the Caesar was becoming a divine god through this process. Walking next to the bull would be a servant who carried an axe then to kill the bull. So then they get to their procession, and they get to this hill, okay? On this hill, they, they called this in Rome was the Capitoline Hill. It was the head hill, and on this hill was their most sacred temple to the gods. So this procession now would walk up, up the hill, okay? Um, next, the candidate would stand before the temple altar, so they'd go into the altar, They'd stand before the temple altar, and they were offered by the servant a bowl of wine mixed with myrrh. Are you starting to see some of these connections that we're going to get to here in just a second? Um, he took the myrrh and the wine mixed together as if he was going to accept it, but it was like ritual to not. Then he gave it back to the servant. The servant also refused, so then the wine was poured out on either the altar or the bowl. Then the bowl would have been sacrificed to make this process complete. Then the Caesar-to-be gathered his second-in-command on his right, his third-in-command on his left. This was called a, uh, I'm not going to say this right, but a triumvirate, um, a trefoil. Did I say that close to being right? Eh, whatever. Um, and so what they would do is, um, and, and in 60 BC, this was the, the first one really consisted of, it was Caesar in the middle, 
uh, Pompeii on, on one side and uh, Crassus on the other. All three of these then would, uh, would ascend up into the throne and sit at the right and the left-hand side of the, uh, of the Caesar, okay? Then last, the crowd acclaimed the inaugurated Caesar as the son of God. The process is finished. Now he's been made a deity, and their coins even were printed, you know, Julius Caesar, the son of God. And legend has it that for divine seal of approval, the gods would send signs, such as flocks of doves or a solar eclipse, darkness, things like that would happen uh, throughout uh, the rest of the day when the Caesar was inaugurated. Okay, so that's how the Caesars were inaugurated or, or made, uh, you know, made king in the first century. Now let's look at the book of Mark, how Mark records Jesus' uh, coronation. If you want to follow along, I see Jen's in there. Uh, Mark 15, we're going to begin in verse 16, okay? The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, the palace of Jerusalem, that is the praetorium, the courtyard of the palace, and they called together the whole battalion of soldiers, okay? So they dragged Jesus into the praetorium, put him right in the middle, soldiers all around the outside. Mark 15, 17, and they clothed him in a purple cloak and assembling a crown, only a crown of thorns, they jammed it onto his head. So now we see Jesus in the middle of this praetorium. All around him is the soldiers. The soldiers put on a purple cloak. They put on a, uh, the, the crown of thorns. And then we'll see that they're going to use this scepter, uh, only it's going to be made of reeds here in a minute to torture him. Because on verse, in, in, in the next verse, in uh, 15, 18, it says the soldiers began to salute him. This is the word. They began to salute him just as they would the Caesar, only they're mocking him, obviously. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. And they took the scepter and they struck his head with the reed. They spat upon him and they knelt down in homage to him. This would have been something they would have been, these soldiers would have been used to doing for the inaugurations of, of the Caesar. Step four, the procession begins. Only instead of a bull, this would-be king, our would-be son of God, we know is going to end up being the sacrifice. So Mark 15, 19, after mocking him, they, the soldiers, they stripped him of the purple cloak, they put his own clothes on him, and they led him through the streets to crucify him. So now Jesus now is in the middle of this procession from the praetorium out to where we're going to see um, to the head hill. So they get someone to carry his cross for him. We read this in Mark. And then we'll skip ahead to verse 22. And they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull. Right? They lead Jesus up a hill. Okay? To the grotesque hill in Jerusalem. This was another head hill, not the head hill where the temple of, you know, the gods resided, but this was the head hill of Jerusalem where it's the non-honorable hill. This is the hill you don't want to go to. This is the place of, in, in the Greek, literally is of the cranium, uh, the skull. It's, the, it's a hill of death. When you go there, it's be only because you're going to either die or you're going to watch somebody die. Then in verse 23, they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but just like the Caesar, Jesus did not take it. And there they crucified him. And so our king is offered the wine mixed with myrrh. He refuses it, and then he's sacrificed. He's killed just as the bull would have been at that same spot. Now we're in verse 25. It was 9 o'clock in the morning when they crucified him, Mark says. 
and the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. Very fitting title. This was what Jesus was. It was mocking, but it truly was his title. And with him, they crucified two bandits, two brigands, one on his right and one on his left. This is Jesus' triumvirate, or however you pronounce that word, the left and the right. As these two are now ascending their thrones on a cross along with his king. Lastly, Mark records that Jesus was again acclaimed and mocked, okay? This is verses 29 to 38. And then just like the Caesars, a divine sign confirmed God's presence, right? The temple curtain tears in two, and other things happen. But then here's really the climax, I think, of what Mark's getting at in Jesus' coronation here. The Roman guard, who undoubtedly had already done this and called the Caesar, proclaimed him as the Son of God, is now standing there facing Jesus in verse 39, says that the Roman guard, the same one from the Praetorium, saw that he had breathed his last and said, truly, this man was the Son of God. You see, this soldier now repents. He changes his mind. And he pledges his allegiance not to Caesar, but to a new king. This is a highly, highly political move for this soldier to make at this moment because other soldiers would have seen him. And for all you know, he might have even uh, died as a result of, of proclaiming Jesus as the true son of God. You see, as Jesus was being crowned king, as Jesus was led to his own coronation up on that throne, up on his cross, for the whole world to see, the symbolism would have been unmistakable for those who were there in the first century. The symbolism here would have been unmistakable for, 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 for the first readers of Mark's gospel, a gospel that Mark specifically wrote to answer one question. Mark's entire gospel comes down to this one question, is who is the true Son of God. Is it Caesar or is it the Christ? Because to answer the question, who is the true Son of God, was a title that only the Caesars would have been able to use. And Mark is, well, he's flipping it back to where its rightful place should be. The crown of thorns, the purple robe, the, the royal staff, the soldier's homage, the head hill, all of it. Mark chooses to include all of these details because the aim of his gospel is for the reader to look at the Christ and say, surely this man is the son of God. This man is the true king, Mark wants us to say. This Christ is the true son of God. Mark's saying, you guys, it's not the Caesars that have that title. It's not the kings you've known, but Christ is the true king. Christ is the one who's being coronated on this day. This was a highly political move by Mark to put this in his gospel, and for a good number of these disciples, calling Jesus the Son of God even got them killed. You see, by reclaiming the title for Christ as the Son of God, Jesus and his cruciform love is placed at the very center of the cosmos. This was like the center of the cosmos at this time. He was placed right there among them, politically, socially, religiously, economically, every inch of it, Christ was here to be king of. 
Because where we're headed this week, we're headed to the cross, it is a ridiculous and horrendous throne, right? It makes no sense to us. It makes no sense to us that our king would ascend this device of torture. But yet it's the amazing way in which life is brought into this world. The cross is the reason why we're even in the streets this morning of Jerusalem. The cross is the reason why we're singing and waving our palm branches, saying Hosanna, because we know where this is all headed. The cross is the reason why we're even going anywhere this week. You see, Jesus taught all that he had to teach. Not all that he had to teach, but a lot of what he had to teach throughout all the Gospels. Then he set his sights on Jerusalem, where he was going to overtake the city. And he was going to do it on the cross. Not killing his enemies along the way, not, 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 not tramping, not, not sending fire to consume them like some of the disciples wanted. But he was going to go to the cross. Because at the cross, it's where we see the God who loves his enemies. The God who washed his friend's feet. The cross is where we see the God whose righteousness is greater than that of the Pharisees. Where we see the God who, being rich, became poor. Where we see the God who gives his robe to those who took his coat. The God who turns the other cheek. The God who prays for those same men who spit him and jam a crown of thorns on his head. The cross is where we see the God who rebukes his disciples for wanting to overtake the city by raining fire down from heaven. And instead, the cross is where we see Jesus rain grace down from heaven, from his throne saying, Father, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. This is where we're headed this week. This is where we're headed with Christ. I'm sure Pastor Steve is going to have a lot more to say about Christ's coronation this Friday. I'll leave that to him, kind of to fill in the, fill in the meat and the details for that. But this is where we're headed. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy, Holy, Holy Spirit, our true King, the true Son of God. We cry out with the people in the street, Hosanna, God save us now. But God, yet just like those same people, sometimes we get frustrated with the ways in which you want to do things and then in a couple days we say, well, you're not doing it our way, so might as well kill you. God, again, help us to have eyes to see these stories this week through the lens of your true coronation, your true forgiveness upon the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We pray all these things in Jesus' name who taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in the heavens, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts just as we forgive those who are indebted to us. 
Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.